Welcome back. I'm Dr. Brian Williams, a social and bioethicist, and I'm also president of McCall College in McCall, Idaho. This is Lecture 3B of our series, Helping Healthcare Become Healthy and Caring. We're also constructing a new Pacific Northwest bioethic. We welcome you today. We're glad you've joined us. If you can, go back and review the earlier lectures so that the content in this lecture makes sense. In this third Part B lecture, we'd like to begin with a, an understanding that bioethics is social and political. Bioethics is how to shape the philosophy of healthcare. And one of the key issues with, that we've seen in philosophy is the concept of one and many. We've introduced this in previous lectures, and I'd certainly encourage you to review this, to this topic there. One and many has, has social and political extensions so that it begins to fit into a number of social structures and it begins to offer a political extension that has a sense of newness to it in our generation, even though the concept itself is as old as Plato and probably older. The individual, the one, and the community, the many, has already been introduced. The individual focus tends to want to, ex to, to uh, exercise life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a constitutional guarantee. That's explicit in the Constitution. But I'd I wonder if it's not time to develop fulfillment in our lives instead of happiness. And so happiness tends to have a frivolous uh, expectation in our society. And I'm wondering if we should even rethink that particular term of happiness. Whether fulfillment to make life better might be a better concept for us. The community's focus tends to expect good government and service to others. These are implicit in our constitutional development, but they're expected. For us to accomplish service to others and also good government, we need to recognize that there's a key virtue embedded in those expectations, and that's duty. Let's try and understand democracy a little more using our concept of one and many. Democracy is the symmetry between the one and the many with a return to one. Let's see how many steps it, it takes to create that. The first step is one vote. That then allows uh, allows that vote to be collected to form one's community. 
the community elect one representative. Those representatives collect to create one legislature. Who is led to lead by one leader who willingly returns to be one vote, one and many. And many. Autocracy is the asymmetry between one and many. Step five changes. That person that leads now reads who is led by one leader who willingly never relinquishes power. And so as the conversation about democracy continues in our time, we need to recognize the difference between democracy and autocracy using the model of one and many. Rights and duties are directly linked to one and many. Rights are needed by the one who is a minority in the majority. Duties are needed by the many to share the load equitably across a community. Legal rights are duties, are, excuse me, legal rights are rights with an attached duty. Someone has a duty to defend your right. The right to life is a legal duty. A policeman has a duty to protect and serve you. And if someone has a gun pointed at you and a police officer is available, their duty is to protect your right to life. And that duty may include stepping in front of the weapon and protecting you. That's a duty that's attached to the right to life. There's also other rights. And the other, uh, the other term that we often use are moral rights. And so let's take a look at the differences between legal and moral rights. Legal rights have their duties firmly symmetrical. You have no right to life unless someone is prepared to exercise their duty to protect your right to life. And so I define those as symmetrical, symmetrical rights. Moral rights do not have an attached duty. Let's use healthcare as an example. Healthcare is a moral right. Outside of an emergency, no one has the duty to treat you. For a moral right to have sway over a community, the community must agree to have that right imposed on them. And so for healthcare 
to be a legal right, the community must agree that health care should be imposed on everyone, and doctors would be expected to treat everyone in all situations. And as we're here, I think it would be wise for us, with our attempts to create uh, healthier health care, that we recognize the community needs to divide health care into two sections, primary and secondary health care. We need a right to, to primary health care, and we have to leave secondary health care to an optional status. Primary health care needs to be a right, and we have to leave that behind. There's too much health care in the American system that is optional. We need to assess what primary health care is, such as the care for children, such as uh, in infections that are managed with routine antibiotics. We need to divide health care into two sections. Primary health care, which we can then agree, is a right that we must have, have uh, society offer. And secondary health care, which is optional for those that have the resources to, to be able to acquire uh, secondary health care. There's lots of surgeries. There's lots of situations where people are making optional choices. For healthcare to get healthier, we must divide healthcare into primary and secondary and make primary healthcare a right. Let's think about something else. Is the right to bear arms a legal or moral right? How do we assess that? Can someone force you to carry arms in your general course of business? Obviously, no. So, the right to bear arms is a moral right, which means the community must be organized in such a way as to make it a workable right. And so, the community also has the role and responsibility to, to restrict a right if it's only a moral right. And so the right to bear arms uh, is, is a moral right and, and is a right that the community must make decisions on. Uh, and so that turns into a legislative process. That right is different than a legal right, which, which is something that can be imposed on, uh, on those with a duty to carry out that right. As we've seen, the right to bear arms is not a legal right in the, in the terms that I've defined it as. It is a moral right. And so uh, the right to bear arms, because it has Supreme Court uh, Supreme Court leverage to it uh, is, a, is a strong right, uh, but it is not formally a legal right. 
in the way that I've defined it. And so that's something that we as a community must always talk about, is how, what kind of armaments do we want in our community? Well, what other kinds of political con uh, uh, concepts are symmetrical that we can talk about today? I'd like to offer you some new political symmetries. I'd like to recognize uh, and offer the, the illustration that conservative and progressive are symmetrical terms. They firmly work together. Let's define our terms. I define conservative to be those who protect the best of the past to make for a better present. Those that protect the best of the past, clearly embedded in tradition, clearly embedded in history, clearly embedded in concepts that have been successful in the past, to make today a better day. I define progressive to be those who incorporate the best of the future to make for a better present. And so progressives are those open to new innovations, new ideas, new trends, uh, so that those trends can be incorporated into the present day and make today a better day. Since we define time to be past, present, and future, these terms are symmetrically linked. One defies, defines the past, helping us in the present, one defines the, the future, also helping us in the present. And so these are linked through their, our understanding of time. So that linkage uh, is defined to be a symmetrical linkage. If someone named A defines oneself as conservative, they do their best to conserve the best of the past. If someone named B does a better job of conserving the past and stands alongside of A, A is now a progressive. You see how that linkage works? And so, and so we, when, when we're compared in community, we can self-define ourselves as a conservative, as an individual, but in community, when you stand up beside someone else, they can be more conservative than you. That makes you a progressive. See how that linkage works? We all can be either, depending on where we stand in our community with those around us. So, conservatives and progressives are symmetrically linked and very fluid. And each needs to realize their key value to each other. This is a complex thought, a deep truth. If that concept of deep truth is new to you, then please review Lecture 1A and 1B where we introduce this idea of deep truth.
What I'm offering you today are the seeds of a new political theory. We really haven't had uh, a, a rethinking of key concepts of our, our legal theory since the 1970s with Rawls' theory of justice. That text uh, was seminal for those in political ethics and political theory and revolution, revolutionized the way we thought about justice. And so I'm like to, I, I think I uh, would like to, to uh, stand on the ground that this is a new political theory. It's only the seeds. Uh, it's not fully worked out yet. But there's something here that should help us as we move forward. We all recognize polarization in our communities. And our community seems to be evenly divided between progressives and conservatives. Uh, and that polarization we, we, we recognize, and it seems to be damaging our political structures and our political discourse. But let me leave you with a thought today. Polarization is the foundation of unity. Oh. If polarization is the foundation of unity, we're in polarization, but we don't know how to achieve unity through that step. And so within the, the thinking of symmetry, we're able to begin to build on that foundation to something meaningful with the goal of unity. Let me use the illustration of light. If you went to your flashlight and you looked at the batteries in the light, in the flashlight, you see you have a positive and a negative uh, pole on your battery and batteries in series that is creating the light in your flashlight. Well, let's make that our model that we're thinking about. We certainly have a very negative and a very positive in a flashlight. And that very negative and that very positive must be structured together to allow the enormous energy of opposing poles to create a valuable outcome. The key to the flashlight is the organization of negative and positive, constricting and controlling the energy that is, is flowing so that light can be obtained. And so the key to symmetrical thought is that we need very negative and very positive set in a structure that understands the energy that's flowing so that light, instead of just heat and, and uh, explosive potential, can be channeled into something productive. And in the case of a flashlight, it's light. So we need strident, very positive progressives to represent liberal thought. We need strident, very negative conservatives to represent conservative thought. We need both of them. And both must be structured 
in a political in a political setting that recognizes that need, values that need, and organizes that need so that energy can flow and light can be created. And if that structure isn't created with an intellectual structure of the need of both, then you see excessive energy, explosions, struggles in the political space. But maybe what we need most of all is a middle class that is trained to be wise as the poles clash. We need training in complex thinking as early as students are ready, certainly junior high, possibly late elementary school. We need their ability to understand this complex thinking that's going on so that it isn't just the simplistic understanding of one side is better than the other and the other, uh, the, the other side needs to be diminished in value so that your thinking can be uh, accelerated and magnified uh, in the political space. That's creating the confusion we have now and that's creating the explosive potential. So we need complex thinking. We need training in religions and philosophies of the world and for them to be taught more broadly to help develop complexities of thought. Other communities have dealt with this exact problem and have organized ways of thinking that is meaningful and helpful and allows the populace to succeed. We need an opportunity to study in those areas. In this part of the world, we need a professional religion department that must be developed at one of our public universities in Idaho. There isn't one. Uh, there are certainly scholars of religion that are embedded uh, in our universities and, and offer parts and parcels uh, uh, of these, but there's no broad religion department that would help us in this kind of complex thinking. And it's often religion that has had to deal with the, the complexities and has had to create structures that would allow diverse thought to function well. The symmetrical concepts of Taoism uh, coming out of Chinese philosophy is one area that we can learn from, and that's the yin and the yang. And you see it all through our, 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 our culture now. You see it tattooed on people's arms. Uh, you certainly see it in commercial goods. And so it's seemingly to have a positive effect in our culture. And I would define yin and yang to be a wonderful uh, image that represents symmetry of, uh, of black versus white with a black dot embedded in the white and a white dot embedded in the, the black. But it isn't the two sides that really should be seen. It's the circle that creates the unity that is necessary for the structure to have any meaning at all. That's symmetrical. Uh, and so you have symmetry and you have unity. Young people need to be encouraged to study ethics so that they understand the moral crises that they will encounter in their life and the opportunity of studying and practicing how to respond to those crises 
before they have to live them out in real life. And so studying ethics would have a profound effect. Uh, and that needs to be started earlier. And it needs to be offered in a complex way. Our kindergarten walls are filled with opportunities to understand various virtues. But what symmetry teaches us is virtues are constructed uh, be between the, uh, the, the virtues and the vices. Uh, and so they have to understand the vices and they have to understand the virtues. And as we've illustrated before, uh, the way to find a virtue is often symmetrical virtues uh, in, in unity that are, that are creating the uh, boundaries that life is, is, uh, it works under. And I'd reference you back to our conversation on Aristotle and courage. How do you become courageous? Uh, and that would be between the boundaries of protecting oneself and protecting others. And both of those are virtuous activities. Uh, but we have to live a life of moving between protecting oneself and protecting others to realize that the virtuous activity is to leaning in to protecting others. We have to start that kind of thinking far earlier than we do. And sadly, uh, ethics is formally taught at the end of the typical undergraduate program. And that's desperately too late uh, for, for our young people to, to deal with those things, especially if they're not going to college. Uh, they'll be dealing with the moral crises that need some preparation. And so starting the, the training of, of ethics formally in the, in the uh, K-12 would be a much better starting point for our, our students that are at a senior place. And here in McCall, that would be do some ethics training in, in the eighth grade before they move into high school and deal with all the crises of, of transitioning to high school. Deal, embed more, more ethics training in the senior year as they're beginning to prepare for the next crises, which is college. And so the thinking of, of uh, using it as a, a terminal or an endpoint in the educational process is sound. But there's other terminal places that we can embed training on ethics. And that would be here in McCall, uh, the end of the junior high, which for us is in the eighth grade, and the end of high school, which is in the twelfth grade. So one of the recommendations for effective social symmetry and for a healthy political environment is we would recommend most middle-class voters to become independent. And right now we see that the, the uh, political left and the political right uh, struggle to and, and create structures so that they can encourage the middle class to uh, sign up to be uh, left or right. Uh, but that's, that's really only necessary when to make that decision when you're in the voter's box. If you remain independent, then both sides must appeal to you as they're working through their policy development. And if they feel they have sufficient middle class uh, too early in policy development, then the policy becomes more radicalized. And so if they're, if they're concerned that their policy uh, is, uh, is, 
is too radical, then they will delay that and uh, they will move to the middle ground to appeal to the middle class voters. So it's essential for a healthy political structure for the middle class, the dominant uh, a, a group of folks in, in a political structure to keep them independent as long as possible. Um, we need for some to be strident Republicans and strident Democrats. That we need. Uh, uh, but, but the dilemma is if the middle class moves too quickly into stridency, we create the struggles that we have because we don't have the legislative capacity to manage those struggles right now in a way that's meaningful. We need to train young voters to weigh issues in complexity and lean into the needs of our community. And yes, we are proud of our independence. Yes, we want to teach our young people to be independent. But our dominance of independence and liberty has created a situation where our young people feel that rebelling uh, is far more than just, uh, it, it is far more pronounced than it should be for healthy communities. And so we need structures that help our young people who are, who are often wanting to rebel in any case, to begin to recognize that the needs of the community are the best way forward for healthy communities. We need to change the dominant language of fractured moral issues. Let's use abortion. Does life really begin at conception? Or is conception a key step in life everlasting? Let's break that apart. Is there life before conception? Is the egg alive? Is the sperm alive? Uh, and so if life precedes conception, then conception can't be the beginning of life. That's an artificial boundary that someone has used to construct an identity so that they can create structures of support. But in reality, life is everlasting. It's designed to be everlasting. And life goes on. And the egg is life. The sperm is life. And their interaction creates more life. But it's all life. So when our, our language uh, forces people to make a decision, do you agree that conception is the beginning of life? You're asking them to make a political response to something that has no meaning. Life is before, at, and after conception. That's life as it's designed. And so to create any artificial boundaries in there is simply to make the language far more of an identity statement of those who agree with me than a sound statement of biological truth, of moral truth, uh, of social truth, of political truth. And so we need to recognize that our language, when it's framed like that, can just create division. It doesn't help us solve our problems. But on the other side, is it really a woman's health we are protecting or an easy means of resolving unwise sexual activity? 
Our freedom must have consequences. Our freedom of sexuality has the consequences of continuing life. Do we want to continue life? And we have all sorts of tools to interrupt that process of life giving. And we need to recognize that our choices may lead to unwise activity that leads to an unwise consequence. And so we need to recognize what our choices uh, are doing to the long-term uh, life of our, our people. And so, and so that needs to be recognized as well. So both sides construct a, a, a language and a way of framing the issue the, the other, other side cannot agree to. And so the technique I've always used is change the language uh, so, that, so that they can't use the, the rock-solid language of the past uh, that I'm pro-life or I'm pro-choice. Uh, that, that language creates the barrier to the conversation. Change the language. Change the terms. Reflect on what you're saying. Those are the ways that we can begin to build a conversation uh, on difficult moral issues that need to, that will always be with us. And so we need to recognize their longevity. Uh, we can see it throughout humanity, the conversation on abortion. Uh, we can see that, that conversation on the right to die. We can see that conversation forever as human beings. And we need that conversation. But we end, when we enter it into it, and we're constructing identity structures that define how you think as the only way to think, then you're creating social explosions as opposed to social conversation for perpetual issues. And you need advice from the left, and you need advice from the right, so that we as a community can go forward with what is important at this particular uh, stop on uh, the story of human existence. So we have social symmetry, but we also can recognize there's some things we need to do for political symmetry. We need to, to require all candidates for public office to announce participation and accountability in a character-building institution. What's that? Well, for time immemorial, our religious communities have built institutions so people can have opportunity for character building. So our churches, it's just one way of defining uh, a religious group, is a character building institution. But I, I certainly don't want to restrict uh, our political candidates into saying that they have to attend a church. But I think they have to have to participate and become accountable to all of the character-building institutions in our community. And I would add that our synagogues are wonderful character-building institutions, our temples, our mosques, but it doesn't have to be religious. Rotary is a wonderful uh, character-building institution. Uh, our, boy, our, our boy and girl scouts or derivatives that are coming off of that are wonderful character-building institutions. Uh, and, and so our, our women's club, uh, our civic clubs, all of these 
typically are wonderful character building institutions. And I can hear the, the, the blowback now from this recommendation by saying, well, what, what if they were uh, a, a member of the Eternal Green Frogs Association of Valley County? Fine, let the voters decide if that's a character building institution or a dodge that they are using to, to avoid accountability and to avoid the participation that is necessary. And so I don't think there's too much that is, is a flaw in this recommendation, but we need for people to announce to us that they are part of a character building institution and that those that surround them in those institutions will validate their character when it comes to a political question. Who supports you? Uh, do those who represent character building institutions, do they support you? And I think we could eliminate some of these scoundrels that are arriving in our political structures if we had a way to check and balance that they, as a, as a candidate for political office, have uh, those that they are accountable to. And those are the character-building institutions. I hope that makes sense. We will come back to this topic next week as we review all of the concepts as we're constructing our ethic and bioethic for the Pacific Northwest. But a case study might help us develop a new political awareness. This is our third case study, and I've entitled it Dueling Parents. The conservative father and the progressive mother were disagreeing again. This time, it is about vaccines. A new mRNA vaccine for both flu and COVID was just approved for children older than five. The family has a history of both diseases ravaging older members of the immediate family. The, the dad's family has been much healthier with a faith-based to, to, to determination to rely on faith for medical crises. The mom's family has fought numerous battles with these bugs. Vaccines are routine in her family. The parents are in the ER with an 11-year-old child with suspected influenza. However, COVID has not yet been ruled out. Symptoms are 24 hours old. A social worker is with them. The hospitalist, that's an MD who's assigned to the hospital, has recommended the new vaccine as it has an ability to mitigate symptoms of both diseases if used in the first few days. You are the senior RN. What do you do? Let's go back to our structured analysis of case studies so that we can help ourselves as we begin to, to move through these particular, these particular struggles. First, what's your instinctive response? Should they take the vaccine? What shapes your decision? Your background may be very different than theirs. 
that your background is helping you to make your decisions. Typically, it's how you'd serve your children if you had an 11-year-old. What have you done in the past? So that tends to shape our decisions. But you've obviously going to be aware with your initial instincts that that might not be working. So what are the two consequences that you need to consider that result from your instinct? And if, if, you're, if you're typical, uh, a typical RN in the medical system, you probably have an affinity to vaccines, and you might suggest it, uh, that, that they have the vaccine. But you would immediately get blowback from that. What's the blowback? I know of nurses in my family that would not take the vaccine. Well, what's the consequence to that? when it comes to your recommendations. So whichever way your instinct tends to go, make sure you reflect on the consequences that are going to happen as we're in a, 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 a medic, medically um, diverse area that uh, deserves to be thought out before you settle on a plan. Gather any facts available to you. So you would go back, it's a new vaccine, you'd look up uh, what's happening. And, and no, this is not a vaccine that's available today, but it's close. And uh, you might take some time today to find out about this next new mRNA vaccine. What is the mRNA? Do you remember that from our COVID experience? Uh, might look it up and see if it's different this time around. Get out ahead of the next crisis in your family. And this is a case study that would help you do that. So gather any facts of anything you're uncertain of. So ask yourself who are the primary, uh, primary characters or institutions. And I like to break it down into primary, secondary, and tertiary. Who are the primaries? And that's typically the people that uh, we've talked about. Uh, we've talked about the mom, the dad, the 11-year-old, the hospitalist, the RN, all of those are our primary characters. But who's secondary? Clearly, the families of each side are standing behind. Clearly, the, the, the staff uh, in the ER and the hospital itself are, are part of that particular conversation. All right, then. And so we were discussing our primary, our secondary, and our tertiary characters. And from the perspective of the tertiary stakeholder, then that's clearly those that might receive the vaccine in the future. Uh, and so those are, are important stakeholders. If anything goes wrong with this, with this vaccine, then there, there will be issues for the world, not just for this ER. So there's some that are, are really standing behind all of the people around this decision and need to be recognized. And so those are our stakeholders. What's the key ethical issue? Frame one issue that you think is most important as a competing claim between two parties. Should the first party do something or should the second party do something? Uh, and so uh, you can look at this from a number of directions. Do you give the vaccine or do you not give the vaccine? Might be one way of framing the issue. Uh, does the, the opinion of one community, uh, who are progressive, overweigh the, uh, or conservative, uh, overweigh the opinion of the other community, progressive or conservative? 
Uh, and so, um, what are the specific tensions, principles, or rights that are in tension? Go through our conversation of all of the principles and rights that we've talked about. Which ones are meaningful in this particular case? And then apply the Williams Method of Moral Assessment. Uh, and that means to define the virtue that, you're, that you're, you sense you're working on. Well, what, do you, what, what are you dealing with? Invert the one and the many. Assess the inversion and oscillate wisely. Now, what's your plan of action? I hope you've encountered some concepts that you found meaningful so far. I'd love to hear about them. And there's various ways to communicate. And certainly, uh, you can respond to these videos uh, uh, in internal to each video. Uh, and I'd, I'd ask you to, uh, to feel free to do that. And what concepts will you act upon? Uh, what concepts so far are meaningful to the point of action? And that's important as well. We come to the end of Lecture 3b, and we've taken some time to introduce to you the seeds of a new political theory. We all recognize the division in our community, but we recognize now, I hope, that there can be a way forward so that we can begin to move from, from our division to our unity. And so I trust you've sensed that that's part of our lecture today, that we can begin to work on that very difficult topic. And if we can improve our political structure, then by extension, we'll improve our healthcare structure. And our healthcare has been tortured by the polarization in our political community. And so if our political framework uh, can lead to unity, then healthcare will be healthier as a result of our political changes and choices. And so I ask for you to think wisely upon what you've heard today. May it be meaningful to you, and may it be something that you can act upon to make your life better. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity of presenting these ideas to you. And I look forward to healthcare becoming healthier and more caring.